Hi there, I'm Dexter Fergie, and you're listening to New Books in Intellectual History. Thank you so much for joining us today, and thank you for supporting the New Books Network. Today I'll be speaking with Simone Mueller about her wonderful new book called Wiring the World, The Social and Cultural Creation of Global Telegraph Networks. It was published last year by Columbia University Press. Mueller leads a research group at the Rachel Carson Center for Environment and Society at the Ludwig Maximilian University in Germany. Her book is a fresh take on 19th century submarine telegraphy. The book traces processes of globalization, nation-building, capitalism, and cosmopolitanism. And to handle such grand themes, Mueller looks at a group of individuals located in the Atlantic world who conceptualized, built, operated, and regulated global telegraphic networks. By wiring the world, they functioned as, to borrow a term from Mueller, as actors of globalization. The story is as much about collaboration as it is about conflict. Her analysis is especially attuned to the cultural and social meanings ascribed to the technology and to the rapidly expanding network. It was an absolute joy to read, and so I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm here with Simone Mueller to discuss her new book, Wiring the World. Welcome to the show, Simone. The book was extremely rich and thought-provoking, and I really enjoyed reading it, and I hope all of our listeners get their hands on a copy so that uh, they can do the same. So in the tradition of the show, can you start us off by telling listeners how you became a historian, what drew you to the discipline? Yes, sure, Dexter. First of all, thank you for the invitation and giving me this opportunity to share my thoughts and ideas on wiring the world. Of course. So how I became a historian is very much up to my dad. And the fact that I come from a family of storytellers. So um, when I was little, my dad would always tell me stories about kings and knights and princesses and empires rising and falling. And it was not until I came to school, to high school, that I learned that the stories my dad had been telling me were actually true. Wow. And, I mean, he was just so much better than any of my high school teachers. But that drew me in how how we create stories and how those stories um, tell us so much about who we are. They tell us so much about our presence. We create our life, our reality through those stories. And so that just kind of like drew me in to the field of history. Uh, I wanted to know, I wanted to learn about this art of telling stories that are true. Well, that, that's probably the most amazing uh, origin story I've uh, had so far on the show. Um, um, so uh, let's get into the book. Uh, so the book is an exploration of the men and women who built, managed, financed, and operated global telegraphic networks. Uh, they were the engineers, entrepreneurs, politicians, media reformers, and financiers who negotiated and battled over the very concepts that helped define an electric world in union. Um, the book traces the connections between these people and uh, the broader currents of 19th century globalization. As you put it, these cable actors connected macrostructural processes of economic imperialism and geopolitics with microstructural interpretations of the means and ends of global communications. As opposed to other books on global telegraphy that uh, focus more on uh, the imperial or economic or geopolitical dimensions, your analysis is especially keen on unearthing the social and cultural meanings of the wiring of the world. Um, so what did you envision when you began writing this book? So <laughs> that, that is a tricky question because when you start out writing a book, you usually start it with one vision and then you go through all the material and the material tells you a different story. So what I wanted to bring to life were the men and women behind the network mm. and um, what their perspective was in it. So that's what I started out with. And then the material just like revealed stunning surprises to me. Um, out of a sudden, it became such a rich story that had so many 
side turns, um, like when I discovered women financiers of the, the telegraph cables, or when I would learn more about how people really envisioned the cables to help um, for universal peace or world peace. Perfect. And because it is a, a global history, uh, you must have spent a tremendous amount of traveling around the world uh, visiting archives. Can you say something about the, the, the different institutions that you visited or just like the, the process of trying to bring this story together? Yes. So that is also like the, the fun part about doing global history. You get to go to a lot of different countries and a lot of different archives. <laughs> yeah. So for this book, I visited roughly eight different countries and uh, more than 20 different archives. And one of the, the highlights I had was the Cable and Wireless Company archive. It's out in Porth Kernow. So Porth Kernow is a tiny, tiny, tiny um place, I would say, um, about four miles south of Lens End in Cornwall. Hmm. And it holds the largest collection that we have on submarine telegraphy, everything that came through um, the companies that ran the global telegraph network in the 19th century. So what is really fascinating about this place is that on the one hand, you have this rich archival material. And on the other hand, you're at the most remote and isolated place you can be on Earth. You have the fiber optic cables that connect Great Britain with the rest of the world right underneath your feet. And you stand on the shoreline and you have now cell phone connection. There's a bus that runs three times a day. Wow. And the next village is like an hour away. And just to experience as a researcher the discrepancy between connectedness and being disconnected at the very same time just brought me so close to my protagonists and the story that it really helped me understand what they were talking about. Um, other highlights, I, I went to very state archives um, like the Archive Nationale in Paris, um, I went in Germany to the Bundesarchiv um, to look at the German companies. I uh, spent time in Ottawa to look at the Canadian National Archives. Hmm. Um, I went to tiny, tiny places in Great Britain where you had cable stations or um, the remains of them. I even met like, people whose grandparents had been telegraph operators and who passed down their family stories to me. And so it's just a very wide range of, of sources and institutions that you visit mm -hmm. and um, the stories that you, yeah, gather. That's an amazing uh, research story. As your book is a global history, um, you are using global in a fairly interesting way. Can you tell listeners um, what you mean by that word? So I think one important distinction, at least in the field of global history as we practice it in Europe, is that global history is not necessarily world history or the history of the entire world, but it's one that engages with stories that are set in networks that are global, that have a global reach, that work with actors that have in their, in their actions a global vision in the back of their mind. That's what's driving them forward. And that allows us to, to look at, at one object like submarine telegraphs and tell their story from a global perspective, not having to go to every little cable station all around the world, mm -hmm. but taking seriously that those actors were really thinking in global dimensions. Um, this comes out already prior to the, the um, Great Atlantic Cable of 1866 with the first submarine telegraph cable that was laid between France and 
England in 1851, it only lasted for a couple of days. But already then, um, newspapers were filled with this idea of, well, this is the first small step. But once we've crossed the English Channel, of course, the Atlantic will follow and then the whole world. So submarine telegraphs always had been conceptualized in networks. Um, people never thought of one single cable connection, but one connection that would lead on to another one and to another one and to another one until you eventually had a cable all around the world. And so I think thinking in those terms of connectedness is really, really crucial um, to doing global history. Excellent. Thank you. Um, so you briefly alluded to uh, your protagonist. So let's get into the first chapter called Networking the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. And this one introduces, introduces us to the gatekeepers of the global telegraphy market, um, a group that you call the class of 1866. And they're called that because of their involvement in the first successful laying of a transatlantic cable in 1865 and 1866. And I just, I really loved the, the retelling of the story of the, the Great Eastern, you know, traveling across the Atlantic and laying the cable. I really got a lot from the source material that you used. Um, for instance, the, the plays that were um, performed on the ship, um, and as well as the, the emphasis on uh, this cable bringing two worlds together. Um, so can you just uh, maybe introduce our listeners to some of the more interesting characters aboard the ship? How did they come together and why this group became so significant to the history of telegraphy? So the, the men, primarily the men that I call class of 1866, are really a very interesting lot of people. They're primarily um, either U.S. American or British, um, from a British background. One of the central figures that we have in, at the beginning of this, this wiring of the world is the American businessman Cyrus Westfield. And he's an early retiree and essentially doesn't know what to do with his time. And his brother kind of like worries about him getting bored. So he connects him with a Canadian um, telegraph engineer, Frederick Gisborne who like implants the idea of the Atlantic cable into his, his mind. And then Field just takes it from there. He has no idea essentially about the technology of telegraphy or um, maritime science, um, ocean currents. But he has charisma. He has... Um, the right idea at the right time, and he has the right connections to follow it through. Because he then just kind of like goes next door. He lives at this grand neighborhood at Gramercy Park in New York. And then he just goes next door and kind of like knocks at the door of Peter Cooper, um, David Moses. Um, he engages Samuel Morse and it's like, hey, I got this idea. Do you want to help me? <laughs> and he he was so convincing that they all said, "Well, yes, we're gonna we're gonna do this." And then he also draws in his brothers, one as an engineer, another one as as um, legal expert to the cable endeavor. And then Field is so smart. He goes he goes to Great Britain. He's like, "Well, we can't manufacture cable here in the U.S." So he goes off. And then in Great Britain. He is just like so um, lucky in by, by tapping into kind of like the right network of people there, of the telegraph engineers um, that have set themselves up. John Bright, for instance, and he really takes a liking to field. He introduces him to the right kind of people, the people in government, the people in finance, um, but also kind of like the important cotton merchants up in Liverpool and Manchester, he would have an interest in financing it. Such such a crazy idea as, yeah, laying a cable across the Atlantic. And so it's it's an interesting lot of um, 
adventurous with a sense for business and the right opportunity that sets out to lay a cable across the Atlantic. Absolutely, and it makes for a, a wonderful story. So on to chapter two, the, uh, the battle for cable supremacy. So before we actually get into that, I just want to say that the rest of the book is organized thematically um, as each chapter centers on a concept accredited to submarine telegraphy. So chapter two uh, looks at the world economy and specifically on the rapid global expansion of the telegraph network in the 1870s. And you just uh, lay out some statistics which are quite shocking. By the mid-1860s, about 11,000 miles of long-distance cables have had been laid, but by the end of the 1870s, there was another 100,000 miles laid. And so obviously this was an important decade. And this chapter provides a really fascinating window into the mechanics of 19th century capitalism. Uh, on the one hand, it shows the ruthless, monopolistic tendencies of the class of 66 and uh, their, uh, their companies, and their strategies to take down competitors like the Siemens brothers. On the other hand, it also identifies the growth of small investors, and in particular, female investors, in financing telegraph companies. Can you elaborate on the interactions between uh, capitalism and global telegraphy uh, in this um, period, and in particular on the ways in which the two were developing together? Yeah, one could really say that global capitalism fundamentally draws from the opportunities that a global telegraph network or a global communication network provides for businessmen all around the world. Out of a sudden, they could um, follow their cargo. They could control um, whether they wanted to buy at a certain price um, in in distant markets. There was no longer the need for the middleman. Um, It also allowed for new forms of trade, like futures trading. And it just gave the whole interaction an entire new sense of of speed and connectedness. And I think what was really, really important to this expansion of the infrastructure of this global communication network that then again provided the basis for global capitalism were some of the very basic principles of global capitalism itself, and that is market liberalism, that it's not The submarine telegraphs are not state-governed, but they are a private enterprise. And companies like the Anglo-American Telegraph Company, the Atlantic Pool, later on Eastern Associated Companies, they managed to set up um, monopolist structures that helped them really expand in such a vast uh, realm and, and set up this global infrastructural system. And it is to to question whether if they had not succeeded in like setting up such a such a um, monopolistic structure. And if Siemens brothers had won out with their idea of more competition or later on even state involvement, if then the telegraphs would have been as as successful as they were at the time. So some of the basic principles that underlie global capitalism were crucial for the success of the system itself. And so both feed into each other. Also this idea of bringing new financiers on board by shifting from the more early modern traditional model of um, family companies to stock holding companies to um, giving out shares and through that involving a a huge amount of people in the businesses that really kind of broadened the financial basis of submarine telegraphy and also other businesses and gave it a whole new set of opportunities to expand and to grow. 
Excellent. Thank you. Um, so let's move on to chapter three, The Imagined Globe, which leads us through the concept of world peace. And it tracks the various utopian meanings with which cable actors and others were imbuing telegraphy. Many believed that the cable network would produce not only a unified market of goods, but also a unified market of morality, that universal peace would be established and that the world would be an electric union. Uh, can you just sketch out for our listeners the this trajectory of telegraphy or ideas of telegraphy from visions of utopian cosmopolitan communities to a system of uh, codified international law and eventually to the civilizing mission. Um, why did telegraphy lend itself to such lofty ambitions? I have to admit this was one of the chapters that I had the most fun with. And at the same time, I think I learned the most from writing this chapter because the concept world peace so readily lends itself to integrating this into our modern way of thinking, our like today's way of thinking. And we feel like we have a connection with the historical actors. And we go like, oh, yes, world peace. But then reading the sources closely, you figure out that world is not the same as all-encompassing or including everyone but that it has very distinct markers of who is part of this world piece and who isn't. And that this is just a very typical thinking at the time. And I think to go back to your question of why the telegraphs, it's communication technology in particular. We see this repeated later on with radio, with wireless, and then also with um, TV, with the internet. Every time a new communication technology comes up, it stirs up this hope that communication makes everything better. If we communicate, we can make ourselves understood. And that just kind of rectifies any kind of misunderstanding. And this idea that misunderstandings are essentially the basis for war, disagreement, and yeah. So this is what kind of brought people to envision the telegraphs themselves, they, they subjectified the telegraphs as, as saviors, as the harbinger of world peace. And if you look at in, in the book, there's just one um, image of the, the two mermaids um, with mm -hmm. the olive branch and they walk along the ocean floor. So this is really something that people believed in at the time. And at the same time, world peace was not universal not including everyone. And they had different underlying, different underlying conceptions of what world peace would mean to them. And it had to do with how they saw or how they thought a, a world in electric union could be governed or could be conceptualized. Hmm. There were those who had more cosmopolitan ideas, primarily the, the telegraph engineers who saw themselves beyond national markers, but rather joined together through, through their profession. And we see that through the creation of the Society of Telegraph Engineers and their idea that they're really a cosmopolitan institution. At the same time, we have a lawmakers like Louis Renault, um, the Frenchman, or David Dudleyfield, the brother of the famous Cyrus Westfield. And they they come up with an entirely different structuration of the world. They say, well, no, it's it's internationalism, it's l'esprit d'internationalité. So it has to go through national and then international institution. It's actually the law that governs the world. And at the beginning in the 1970s, that's such an exciting time because we have both visions competing with each other until like slowly over the course of the 1970s. The 1870s. Cosmo uh, yeah. 1870s, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Skipping centuries. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So slowly over the course of the 1870s, the cosmopolitans lose out. And they, they give way to this more internationalist approach to govern 
the world. We see that also in the, in the vast expansion of international institutions that we have come up at that time. And this kind of lays a certain path dependency that we see up until today and the story of the United Nations. And maybe one last thing to add about this idea of universalism and world peace. And that kind of like leads to, to a third idea that was strongly connected to the cables, and that is that it would not only bring universal peace, but also be a tool in Europe's or your America's civilizing mission. The engineers would bring civilization and peace to the rest of the world. And people expressed with this notion very clearly who was part of the network that were the Christians, the civilized, and who was not part of the network. That was essentially the rest of the world. And you could see that in he would be allowed to use it. He would be employed as telegraph operators. And he was conceptually integrated in theories of world peace through communication. Excellent. So the next chapter deconstructs uh, an idea that's related to uh, the ideas of the uh, previous chapter, and that's the idea of the telegraph as a medium of mass communication. And so uh, you use a term that the German philosopher Ernst Kapp uh, called Weltkommunikation. And later historians would refer to this era as possessing a Victorian internet or as a step towards a global village. But you push back against all of this. You suggest that there are um, many limits and problems of, you know, with, with, to do with the concept of Weltkommunikation. So what were these limits and problems, and uh, why was there never really a Victorian internet? So to approach this question, I think we have to first make the distinction between active use and indirect use of the technology. I'll come back to the, to the second idea of indirectly using the submarine telegraphs later. So direct usage of submarine telegraphy was simply too expensive for roughly 98-99% of the population. The tariffs started out at 20 pounds per 20 words, meaning you had to send a 20-word telegram and it would cost 20 pounds. It took years before the companies or the providers of global communication lowered their tariffs to 10 um, 10 pounds uh, and 10 word messages and then only in 1872 they moved on to a one word tariff system where you could actually telegraph just kind of like one word across the Atlantic and, and only pay for that in addition to you had to include your name as well as the address of the person you wanted to send it to and if you consider that and at the same time look at what people earned at the time a farm laborer or an artisan, an artisan would earn seven shilling a week. So if a telegram comes down to, let's say, five shilling, you're thinking twice about whether you want to send one or not. Mm. And the basic idea behind this, and this goes back to what I describe in chapter two about the telegraph wars, is the, the basic business idea of the class of 1866 and how they created the economic monopoly they had on global communication. Because their idea was, well, we're going to focus on the rich customers. We rather want to have few but well-paying customers than provide communication for a whole lot. This has to do with, on the one hand, the limits of the cables. You can only telegraph so much. But it also has to do with ideas about people living at a distance to each other. It's James Anderson, who's the general manager of um, the telegraph companies, and he comes up with this idea that people who are separated by large distances 
do not care to write or to telegraph to each other anymore. So he's entirely disregarding the massive amount of, of migrants from Europe to the New World. And he says, well, once you're out of sight, you no longer keep in touch in the same way. And to a part, he's certainly exaggerating and it rather fits into his idea of having the rich customers. But at the same time, think about what happens when a friend of yours leaves town, moves to a different country, and how difficult it becomes to just to keep in touch and to keep each other updated about your daily life. There is some truth to that. So for that reasons, or for these reasons, tariffs were just exorbitantly high, and it was very, very difficult to, to afford to send a telegram around the world. Having said that, we may not forget that although people had no access or 98% of the world had no access to transatlantic or submarine telegraphy, they still participated in forms of world communication through, for instance, reading news about other parts of the world or having those news being read to them. When we go back to um, the small investors, these were oftentimes gardeners, um, artists, students. When you look through, through the sources, it, it tells you their profession or the women who invested. Oftentimes they have things like spinster, uh, widow. So not very rich people, but they still saw the submarine telegraphs as as a sound means of investment. And so they, they participated in this global connectivity, just not through sending telegrams. And so there are two sides to this. But in any case, submarine telegraphy was never a Victorian internet in the sense that it would provide easy access and cheap communication to a large number of people all around the world. Great. So uh, on to chapter five, called The Professionalization of the Telegraph Engineer. Um, this chapter looks at the concepts of global organization and the codification of science. It explores how telegraph operators and engineers organize themselves into the Society for Telegraph Engineers, a professional and scientific organization that spanned the globe, though was primarily staffed by Europeans. And here you suggest quite boldly that telegraph engineers were the most global profession in its representation, in its practical exertion, and also in the generation of its profession's knowledge. Um, so can you just say a little bit about the professional and scientific practices of the Society for Telegraph Engineers? What were some of the, the problems that the society faced? And what does the transition from uh, transboundary cosmopolitanism to a multi-centered internationalism say about the 19th century more broadly? So to back up a little bit, when you read the sources um, from the, the journals at the time, the engineering journals at the time, you sense this um, excitement of those young telegraph engineers or telegraph operators and how eagerly they want to go into the service of submarine telegraph companies because it's adventurous, because they can go to places, they can go all around the world. And when you go through the diaries of Charles Bright, for instance, one of the most eminent telegraph engineers of, of the time, his diaries read more like sightseeing than truly engineering work. He's like, oh, today I was in Egypt and I visited the pyramids. Hmm. And by the way, I also laid some telegraph lines. So there was this air of excitement and of once you learn something telegraphy, you can go and see the world and see places. And this was also something that came to the Society of Telegraph Engineers. So the Society of Telegraph Engineers was founded on the wave of excitement that the Great Atlantic Cable created. It is really this, this 
boost and the, the great excitement around the cable that then um, gives this profession almost the arrogance to, to think that they can create a professional society just for themselves. When we think of other professional societies at the time, they are much broader in their span. They are civil engineers or they're mechanical engineers, but they're never just like one very, very distinct profession. But just because they were swimming on this wave of success, they thought, well, we can now create our own society. We have owned it. And the Society of Telegraph Engineers um, really sees itself as a cosmopolitan association, one where you come together bound through the ethos of engineering, of your profession, and not necessarily your, your national background. Uh, because one day you're working at a telegraph station in Perth Colonel, Cornwall, and the next day you're at heart's content at a Newfoundland. Then you move down to a place on the Azores. So this is really what, what brings people around. And when you look at the at the telegraph station, the work was really fascinating. Because telegraph operators always had to check whether the cables were still functioning. So in their during the times when the cables were not as busy, so primarily those times when both the stock markets in London and New York were closed, they were still communicating with each other. And it could be a very technical, can you read, just to see whether the, the signal was going through, but it could also be sending poems back and forth, like we have between two station managers in Hearts Content. And then out in Valencia Island, they would send Christmas greetings. They would chat about the work. They would at points even play chess with each other. And so this feeling of connectedness through the cable also translated into, into their work. When they were, for instance, working out new devices, a new telegraph key, they would do so by testing by testing it right through the communication with a different cable station several hundred or even thousand of miles away from it. And to them, it just felt as if the other person was next door. And this comes out very clearly. One of the first telegraph messages that got sent across the Atlantic is by... Lord Kelvin, or who we later call Lord Kelvin. And he asks, where are the keys for the glass cases? As if his assistant, who is all the way across the Atlantic in Newfoundland, is next door and could hmm. tell him where the keys are. Great. Okay, yeah. thank you. So the next chapter, called Cable Diplomacy and Imperial Control, I absolutely love this chapter. It explores the, the interplay of globalization and nationalization processes. And while cable actors were necessarily cosmopolitan, their rhetoric began to take on a more nationalistic tone in the 1890s. Um, but you were skeptical of, uh, of, of what you call their cable nationalism. But in this chapter, you employ a really, really intriguing concept uh, that you call cable diplomacy. And you use this to uh, explain both the, uh, the geopolitics of laying and operating uh, submarine cables, but then also the local politics of laying and uh, operating submarine cables in particular locales. So what did cable diplomacy look like and uh, what was cable nationalism? Mm-hmm. So... Here we first have to understand how submarine telegraphs work. Um, as I said earlier, submarine telegraphy is a private business. It's not run by governments, which is very different from the landlines. Apart from the United States, all telegraph landlines throughout the world are operated and owned by the respective governments. Not so in the case of the submarine telegraphs. And that has to do with 
questions of extraterritorialization and lending rights. Just imagine France tries to land a cable on the Atlantic shore of the United States in 1869, and the U.S. Congress says, well, do we then have to um, make this landing place? Is that then French territory? Yes or no? And so those questions really puzzle governments and puzzle the, the respective nation states. They're very reluctant to allow a, another nation stand, state to land their cables on their shores um, for those questions of extraterritoriality. And so in this in this space, the private companies can like move in as, as the middlemen. They're negotiating, they're providing the neutral space between those two states. And this is kind of like the basis for cable diplomacy. At the same time, the cable companies are dependent on imperial and colonial structures. They're very dependent on governments giving out lending rights in the beginning on supporting them financially, on giving concessions. And also on the fact that we have an imperial world created where there are certain colonial trading networks, which they then can again follow with their, with their cable connections. And so it's, it's a complicated world that those cable companies have to navigate in. On the one hand, they do want to stay independent. They don't want governments to mess with their system that they have established, to take over, to tell them what kind of rates they should have or to implement taxes on them. At the same time, they want to keep the governments at bay and just quiet and peaceful. So on the national level, we see them negotiating and it becomes more and more difficult once we move throughout the 19th century and imperial ideas and ideas of having its own imperial communication system become more and more prevalent. Among the British, they talk about um, an all red route. They're out of a sudden worried about security breaches in communication and they want a global communication network that only touches British soil. Similarly, the French come up and are no longer content with a cable network that is run for, through companies that are based in London. They see this as British, so they set up their own French companies at the end of the 19th century. Similarly, the Germans. And this is a changing context then for the cable entrepreneurs and they have to navigate in that. And they do that, employing a certain sense of strategic nationalism. And that, what I mean by that is they are certainly patriotic, but they're not nationalistic. But they do employ national rhetoric and even nationalist rhetoric as a tool to get the governments to follow the lead that they're giving them. The best example is the Pacific Telegraph Cable. So the Pacific Telegraph Cable, the American Pacific Telegraph Cable, is late 1902-1904. And it's the American government that is so set on this idea that this cable needs to be all American, meaning it needs to be produced by an American cable company, managed by an American company, and laid by an American cable company. And this is what officially the US government then gets. But 1925, so years later, US Congress learns that this all-American company, the Commercial Pacific Cable Company, is to 75% foreign-owned. And so, it's, it's the best example of entrepreneurs paying lip service to certain nationalist sentiments and then in the background having secret agreements that can just like uphold their working system. And similarly, on the, on the macro level and on the national level, 
they were also similarly navigating on the micro level. Those cable stations were usually for, for reasons of secrecy out in the, in the middle of nowhere. When you think of Hearts Content Newfoundland, think of icy and frosty areas and regions. I'm from, Can- have- I'm from Canada, so uh, <laughs> I, I, I can picture it. <laughs> so, you, yeah, you, <laughs> yeah. so you can clearly picture it. It's not a fun place to be. And it is also a place with a lot of local tension between immigrants that have a Protestant background and immigrants that have a Catholic background. And those cable stations, they had to like see what the local contexts were like. They had to also kind of like, yeah, the, the best example is when we look at Hearts Content. So Hearts Content, the cable companies were rich. So those cable stations were very well provided for in terms of housing, in terms of equipment, but also they built schools. They had their own church. Now what the cable stations did is they did not stay as an isolated community, but they opened up, they opened up their schools for the, for the local kids as well. They opened up their churches to all the different denominations around. It became like a broader or a place of worship for very different denominations because they figured out that they would need the support of the locals because they were at such isolated places that in the times of winter, harsh weather, or just any other sort of disagreement, they needed the support. And so on the micro as well as on the macro level, telegraph engineering always meant to be in a certain way diplomatic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I really uh, enjoyed seeing that term being used on the macro level and also the micro level. And I think at one point you also uh, referred to the the local cable station almost running development projects uh, in the area just to win the hearts and minds of the uh, the local uh, Newfoundland population. And so, yeah, the, in addition to schools and churches, they provided you know running water and waste management. And uh, yeah. so it's just like a really interesting example to think about. And we are now at the conclusion. And here I was wondering if you could explain why the 1890s and the 1900s were a turning point in the uh, history of global telegraphy. In the previous chapter, you kind of alluded to some of the, the nationalistic reasons um, that, that this, these two decades were uh, changing global telegraphy. But I was wondering if you could also um, talk more about maybe the economic, business, or um, technological changes that were bringing your story to an end. Yes. The, the most important change or development that we see that submarine telegraphy has to face out of sudden is technological progress. Wireless telegraphy out of a sudden rivals are no longer other submarine cable companies, but it's this new technology, wireless, that allows a very different form of communicating. In German we say Rundfunk, so it's it's not point-to-point communication like the cable, but point-to-many Mm. on the round and that is just going kind of like so much more integrative and almost democratic in a form of communicating that it really poses a serious challenge to the cable companies it also poses a, a challenge to this position in maritime space as their as their neutral democratic uh, diplomatic realm that they had carved out for themselves through wireless telegraphy, you no longer needed the the dominance over maritime space, but you just transgressed maritime space. You had so many more amateurs come in and move in. It was no longer an exclusive technology. And so it really is the advent of wireless that brings the downfall of submarine telegraphy. Although this is, is not an immediate process, we have, in 1902, Marconi sending his first transatlantic radio message. And then it takes another 20 years before submarine telegraphy is slowly fading out. We have the cable companies merge as cable and wireless. And then slowly, slowly, radio just takes over. 
So by the end, essentially, of yeah, World War One, you really have one technology replace the next. Great. And in addition to an overview of the networking of the world, um, the book also concludes with a nod to the virtues of a network analysis. So in your view, why should historians think more about networks? Networks are a great tool to connect the macro and the micro level. And this way you can you can easily navigate like up and down or, or through different scales of, of, of history. You can go really small onto the micro level to the individual actor, but then see he's only one node that is then connected through the infrastructure and connected to a different object and that he is embedded in larger national structures. And I think bringing all of this together helps us understand the bigger picture of it. I'm not saying that microhistory is bad or macrohistory is bad, but both only show particular angles of the picture. And to bring both together, the macro stories of world expansion, global communication, world politics, to the really local of how people in heart's content perceived um, world communication, why women invested in the submarine telegraphs. The network analysis just is a perfect tool to do so. Great. Well, thank you so much. We always finish our show with uh, one final question, and that's uh, what are you working on right now? So right now I work on the global waste economy the trade in the international trade in hazardous waste material. So I moved centuries. I kind of like from the positive story of globalization, from the positive illusions, I kind of like moved um, to look more closely at the disillusions. I call it also my, my work on the dark side of power. Questions of what are the costs of globalization. I think the trade in hazardous waste material as it emerged in the 1970s and primarily seems to, to replicate old trading networks. Protagonists in my stories speak of garbage imperialism and a recolonization of the global south through the global north. It really tells us a lot about the flip side of globalization. This is what I currently do. That's uh, That sounds... Awesome. I can't wait to read it. Thank you so much for being on the show. And uh, thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Thank you. Bye. Bye.